0: we are in a series for the month of September on liturgy, spiritual formation. And so we're spending some time just considering what we do when we come here on a Sunday morning and worship together. See, we, we want to anchor our understanding of what's happening here in Scripture and understanding that God is up to something profound and meaningful. We're not here just for a little 80 to 90 minute spiritual pick-me-up recharge or just here to kind of see some friends we haven't seen throughout the week and give them a high five and give them a hug and then be on our way. There's something more going on here that makes it vital to our life as Christians that we gather with the people of God weekly to grow in our faith. And so we've been spending that uh, this month looking at the different ways that that is true. And so we've considered how the Spirit and the Word are at play uh, on, on Sunday mornings through things like preaching and the call to worship and the benediction. We looked at last week why we gather and sing and how that is vital to our growth as Christians and how that is shapes and forms us in the truth of the Word. And this morning, we're going to consider why when we gather, we confess sin and profess our faith. Now, those of you that have been around First City for a little while, you notice we did both this morning. Um, sometimes we, Most of the time, we just do one or the other. Well, we did both because of the topic and kind of talk about why we do one of those, or maybe we'll start doing both a little bit more often, but why we confess sin and profess our faith. So this topic of confession, for some of you, may be, come, come with a little bit of a negative connotation. Like When you think of the idea of confessing sin, you begin to think, well, well, why do I have to focus on the negative? Why, why do I have to beat myself up about all the bad things that I have done? Does God just sort of want to keep me in this place where I'm feeling bad about all my sin? Or or perhaps the idea of professing faith and and reciting things like the Creed or passages of Scripture like we did this morning sort of feels like this rote routine uh, exercise disconnected from the rest of your week and the rest of your life. And so perhaps you have sort of these questions about why do we do that or even maybe some outright negative feelings about that. Well, let me say first, if, if your experience with confession, confession and confessing sin has largely been negative, perhaps uh, because someone has, like, heaped guilt on you and, and really beat you down through this practice of confession, or, or maybe someone used your confession of sin and, and sort of owning up and admitting to something and used it against you, let me say I'm, I'm deeply sorry that that has been your experience. Because confession has been meant to be a source of freedom and life to us, not a, not a way to burden us and press us down and harm us. And so if you've experienced that, understand that those who did that to you were not speaking with the voice of the Lord. They were not encouraging you the way Scripture encourages you in confession. And so, so what I want to invite you into, one, is, is to just trust me for a second, for a few moments, um, and, and if you don't know me, I know I'm asking a lot. Um, even if you know me, I, mean, I know I'm asking a lot. Um, but trust me, but trust even more so that the Lord has something to say to you this morning from his word. And so I want to gently correct and re- reorient and redirect you through scripture to consider what God has to say about confessing sin. And then the same thing with professing your faith. If, if it has been rote and routine to you, I want to encourage you with a much bigger picture of what you're doing and why this is important. In Psalm 32 and other passages we're going to look at this morning, hold out confession and profession as a source of life and freedom and hope and strength. And this is what we're going to consider this morning. And so what we're going to look at as we've continued, uh, I I kind of use the the language that we've used in this series, and so we're going to look at how we are formed by confessing and formed by professing. And so I just want want to start by looking at just this idea of confessing sin in general and then talk about how that plays out on Sundays. So in Psalm 32, David begins by proclaiming the blessing of forgiveness, he writes, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in, whom, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So here's a couple things that these verses tell us. One, that there is such thing as sin, and that we are all guilty, and there is an incredible blessing to have that guilt, have that sin forgiven. And so David uses three synonyms for sin he says transgression sin and iniquity now these aren't three levels of sin uh, so transgression's one level and sin's one and then iniquity's really bad it, it's more at looking at the same thing from different angles and so he's he's talking about the comprehensive nature of sin and all the ways that that can affect us and play out in our lives and so for example the the idea of transgression is deliberate planned sin like when i know something is wrong but I'm going to do it anyway. And so I, I plot. I'm, I'm planning this. I have been intentional in the way that I am pursuing this sin. That is the idea of transgression. Sin and iniquity carry more this idea of missing the mark, meaning that there is sin that resides in my heart that comes out in different circumstances. Not necessarily that I sat down, thought through it, go, I know this is wrong, I'm going to do it anyway because what I want, I want more than doing what is right. It's just those moments where that sin that's in your heart just comes out of you. Some circumstance just brings it out of you. Here, here's an example. Um, do you know those times where you're having a conversation with somebody and you're, you're trying really hard not to get angry at them? Or you didn't intend to get angry at them in the conversation, but just as you keep talking, you can feel the anger building and building, and building, and building, and all of a sudden, you just kind of explode on them. You didn't plan that. You didn't want that. But that sin of anger was in there, and for whatever reason, it was being drawn out of you slower and slower and more and more, and all of a sudden, boom, you're sinning. So that's the idea of missing the mark in sin and iniquity, and so sin is this comprehensive thing that is in us and surrounds us and envelops us whether we're planning it or not. And David's point here is that we all stand guilty and sin is pervasive we're all utterly guilty we cannot escape it and then what do we do with sin because because there is sin that means that we're guilty we have broken the standard of good we have broken the standard of what is right and true and good and beautiful what do we do with that guilt how do we deal with that guilt because david talks about this great blessing when our guilt is not counted against us when we are forgiven How do we seek that blessing? How do we experience that blessing? How do we chase that blessing? How about this? How often do we chase that blessing through denial? Like, I'm guilty, but I don't want to acknowledge that I'm guilty. I don't want to think about the fact that I'm guilty. I don't want to have to deal with the fact that I am a sinner. And so we bury the guilt. We bury the fact that we have broken God's commandments David says in verse 3, when I kept silent, this is failing to acknowledge that I've sinned. And so burying it, just kind of repressing it, deciding I don't want to have to look at this guilt, don't want to have to think about this guilt, is a one way that we try to deal with it and try to move away from the feeling of guilt. And so we seek a blessing by denial. And here's one way that this happens for, for many of us. I know I get angry, but she makes me so mad. I know I should not go on my computer and look at illicit images, but you don't understand. I'm not being satisfied. Or I know that I'm kind of a jerk, but at least I don't cheat on my taxes. And so we, we, we try to deny and bury by coming up with excuses. We hide the fact where we're guilty by saying, well, at least I'm not like this. I want you to focus on this. Don't focus on my guilt. And so we deny and we bury. Here's another way that we deny. We get kind of philosophical about it. We, we start to minimize God's presence in the world, or we can start to outright deny God's existence in order to get away from guilt. So in January of 2009, a British comedian, Ariane Shireen, with the support of the British Humanist Society and famed atheist Richard Dawkins, came up with this ad campaign in Britain, and I think it actually made it over to the United States for a time, but they, they purchased ad space on the side of metro buses and subway stations, and this is what the ad said. There's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. And the sentiment behind this ad is a bit interesting. It's saying, hey, belief in God brings with it this idea that you're, you've done something wrong, that you're a sinner, that you've broken God's law, and, and that understanding and that belief that, that God kind of looks down on you in disapproval and maybe judgment is what's causing you to feel so worrisome and anxious. See, see, your guilt is causing your anxiety and your problems and your worry. And so one of the ways you get away from that guilt is just say, hey, there's no God. And if there's no God, there's no guilt. And if there's no guilt, I don't have to worry. I can just get on and enjoy my life. And so it's trying to make this move that, hey, I can move away from my guilt, I can get some blessing by saying, you know what, God, you're out of the equation. I don't need to worry about you. I don't need to worry about your judgment. And, And for us that even believe in the Lord or even profess faith in Christ, we can do something very similar because we can begin to move away from the Lord and minimize his presence in our life when we begin to start to feel guilty. And in some ways, we even do this. Man, God, if you weren't so near, I wouldn't feel so guilty. And so I'm going to start stepping away. I'm going to start backing off. I'm, I'm going to start caring a little bit less about trying to walk in the ways that you've called me to walk. And so you don't have to be an atheist to move away from the Lord and back away in order to try to relieve the guilt and minimize what's going on in your soul. But the question becomes does this work? does this bring blessing? Is the result of this the blessing that David speaks about? Hardly. It's actually interesting that by eliminating God from the equation, it doesn't eliminate guilt. It actually opens the floodgates to guilt. Listen to what historian and University of Oklahoma professor Wilfred McClay points out about us as a society. In a world in which the web of relationships between causes and effects becomes ever better understood, in which the means of communication and transportation become ever more efficient and effective, and in which individuals become ever more powerful and effective agents, the range of our potential moral responsibility, and therefore of our potential guilt, expands to literally infinite proportions." In such a world where there are few intrinsic limits to what I can do, there is almost nothing for which I cannot be in some way held accountable. I can see pictures of a starving child in a remote corner of the world on my television and know for a fact, if I cared to, I could travel to that remote place and retrieve that child's immediate suffering. Whatever donation I make to a charitable organization is never as much as I could have given. I can never diminish my carbon footprint enough, or give to the poor enough, or support medical research enough, or otherwise do the things that would render me morally blameless. Colonialism, slavery, structural poverty, water pollution, deforestation, there's an endless list of items for which you and I can take the rap. The demands of an active conscience are literally as endless as an active imagination's ability to conjure them. We're not any less guilty because we remove God from the equation. You could actually argue that removing God and his standard creates more standards, man-made standards, and makes us even more guilty. And so in a world where we can see things happening thousands of miles away and actually can potentially do something about them, man, there is nothing that my imagination cannot conjure. There's not an argument that cannot be made on the news media or on social media that says, hey, you're guilty for this. You're at cause and you're at fault for this. I mean, we even make this trendy. We have movements like the story of stuff and confront your privilege where people try to make it cool to feel guilty about all the things that I'm doing wrong. And so eliminating God doesn't eliminate guilt. Moving away from him does not bring blessing. And here's another way to look at how we fall into denial. In verse 5, reflecting on how he properly dealt with his guilt, David says he came to the place where he did not cover his iniquity. That he admits that he stopped covering his iniquity at one time means that he was covering his iniquity. Now on on the surface, sort of simple explanation of this is covering your iniquity is denial. Denial. I'm I'm covering it over. I'm hiding it. I don't want people to know. But here's another nuance to this word. See, in in the Hebrew, the word covered is the same word as atoned. And the word atonement means paid for, bought. Some some wrong was committed, and so I atoned for it by paying for it. And so in another way to look at what David is saying is he stopped trying to pay for his own guilt. He stopped trying to cover it through his own good works. So another way you and I deny and cover is through our goodness, through our religious action, whether it be our Bible study or prayer or coming on Sundays or giving. Whatever religious activity you feel like, man, if I do this, it's going to help me not feel so guilty about all my sin. Or if you're less religious, it's giving to charity. It's helping the poor. It's serving in your community. It's trying to eliminate your carbon footprint. It's not being racist and, and you know, feeding into the structural racism. It's, it's having the right opinions or voting in the right way. Whatever it is that when you do that, you sort of say, I feel better about myself. I feel a little less guilty when I do this. And so we cover and we deny by trying to atone for our guilt our own, with, with our own goodness. And so we try to seek blessing that David talks about through through covering with our own actions. And here's the problem with our very flawed, very human way of dealing with guilt. It throws us into a vicious cycle of pride and fear. Here's what I mean. On the one hand, we deal with guilt by ignoring it and we deny it, and then we maybe we deny God exists or we move away from him, and so we go to pride. You know, I'm not that bad. I'm just going to bury what, I, what, I'm, what, I, what I've done. Not that big a deal. But we recognize this doesn't fix the problem, as we've seen, especially in our flat, connected, 24-hour news cycle world. We're bombarded with how lame we are consistently. And so at some point, our pride wears down, and then we, we go to worry and anxiousness, and like, man, I know I'm guilty. I've got to do something. And so then we, we get on the good work train and try to do all of those good things that make us feel less guilty. And then what we end up doing is we start judging other people because they're, they're not as good as us. They, they didn't do this or they didn't do that. And that makes us feel good too because at least I'm not like that person. That swings us back into pride. But then here's the question. Have you done enough? Like, like Have you done enough good things to cover that guilt? How do you know? I mean, I, I'm asking this question honestly. If that's you, if that's in your soul, you recognize that's you. How do you know? What's the exchange rate? Do you Google that? I mean, how do you know that you've done enough? And once you recognize that, that you can't know that, boom, back into fear. And so we go to pride and fear and pride and fear, and it's a vicious cycle back and forth, back and forth. David describes how this vicious cycle of pride and fear feels in verses 3 and 4. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Oh, there's no freedom in pride and fear. It's heavy and it weighs on you. When you're honest, when you take that moment and actually look at it in the face, you recognize it weighs heavy on you. Sometimes you're not even aware of how it's wearing you down. But there's no freedom, there's no blessing in pride and fear how the phrase translated, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. In Hebrew, this is, the literal statement here is the juice of fruit is dried by summer heat. And so the picture David is, is pulling on here is as this really juicy, sweet, tasty piece of fruit that you bite into and it's life-giving. It's like, oh, the juice is good and I, it's a great experience being dried up by summer heat. And so guilt and pride, and fear, they suck the life and sweetness and vitality out of you when you live in that place. David recognizes the heaviness of laying and of denying and covering guilt. And so this blessing is not found in denial and covering. The blessing, as David points out in 30, uh, chapter 32, verse 5, is in confession. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. When we acknowledge that we're guilty, and we recognize that denial doesn't help, burying it, hiding it, moving away from God does not help. When we recognize that there's not enough good that we could ever do to make up for it, when we come to the end of ourselves and confess that we are sinners before God, that's the step towards freedom. That's the step off the cycle of pride and fear and on the cycle of humility and assurance and life. And so it is in confession that we find this freedom because the gospel offers something far better than pride and fear. The gospel offers us life and freedom if we will but acknowledge and confess our sin. Because here's the truth, the children of God are born in confession. If you are a child of God, if you belong to Jesus Christ, there was a time where you recognized, I am a sinner and I need to be saved. I cannot do this. I cannot save myself. And so you saw your sin and you confessed it to the Lord and you turned from that sin. And here's what happened to you. God, through Jesus Christ, fully forgave every sin you've ever committed and any sin you will commit. Forgiven, as, as David uses, so he uses the three terms forgiven and covered and that God does not uh, count sin against you. So this idea of forgiven literally means to be lifted and carried away. So to say that you're forgiven means that God has taken that sin and poof, lifted it, carried it away. To say that, that God has covered your sins and atoned for it means he's atoned, he's paid for it with the blood of Jesus. And this is, this is a, a really sweet uh, truth too, the Lord counts no sin against you. Look, the Lord isn't like that person who likes to bring things up again. You know that friend or that family member is like, like they just like to keep bringing up that little thing you did way back in the day. That's not our God. It's, it's past. It's done. It's gone. He doesn't count your sin against you if you are in Jesus Christ. And the power of sin and its prison are broken. Sin is no longer your master. You're adopted into the family of God, fully loved, fully accepted. You are anchored in a hope, not in your own performance, but in Christ's perfect performance for you. Because it's Christ's death that pays for your guilt. It is his righteousness that is credited to you as if it is yours. It is his resurrection that gives you power to walk in faith and humility. When we turn from pride and fear to Christ, when we confess our sins, this is when we experience blessing. And yet we're still broken. We're still sinners. We still fight this battle week in and week out. We struggle. Our faith can be weak. We fall back into old habits of denial and, and trying to cover. And so this is why we confess sin on Sunday mornings, so that we can experience the blessing that is ours in Christ and move away from pride and move away from fear and anchor ourselves in what is true, anchor ourselves in the hope that we have to build our confidence and assurance for God's love for us. And so we confess sin not because we're afraid we lose salvation, because if you're in Jesus Christ, excuse me, if you're in Jesus Christ, hear me, you can't lose it, because it's not about you. If you are in Jesus Christ, that salvation is assured. And so we don't come to regain something we've lost. We come to grow into something we have. Now, some of you this morning, you've never been born into the family of God, meaning you haven't had that moment where you've confessed your sins and come to Christ. And so you still need to have that confession in which you turn from your sin and become transformed and reborn through Jesus Christ. But for those of you in here that are in Jesus, you come this morning to grow and more tightly take hold of what is yours in Jesus, to experience the blessing that David talks about. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, the assurance that we heard this morning... No matter where you are in this room this morning, it it hits you. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So don't deny and cover. Confess, whether that is to be born into the family of God or confess to grow. Confess to be more and more set free, to move away from pride and fear. Do not be, as David says in Psalm 32, 9 and 10, Like a horse or a mule, without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. The one time in my life where I thought I was going to die was the time that I was on a a horse that my family owned, and we were galloping, I mean, we were going fast. I was about 11 or 12 years old. And the horse that I owned, she was a good horse, but she could be stubborn sometimes. And so the, the person in front of me was slowing down and stopping, so I pull her up. She did not like it, and so she started bucking, bucking like crazy. And I'm holding on, and I'm kind of like halfway off the saddle. And for a moment, I thought I should probably jump off, but then I realized if I do that, I'm probably going to die. And, and so I just kind of held on, and she eventually stopped. Look, a horse that is stubborn and prideful is very dangerous to be around. And if you persist in your pride, in your fear, you can be dangerous to those around you. You can be harmful to those around you. And so David's saying, don't be like those that will be so driven in pride and fear that you become a wreck to those around you. Step into freedom through confession. Because there is life. And so we confess as a church. We confess to experience this freedom. And what this does is when we do this on Sunday mornings, because when we do this together, it's like, hey, the cat's out of the bag. I'm a sinner. I need to confess. We're not pretending. We're not hiding here. And and if you do that on Sunday and it really takes root the way God intends it, that means when you go out into your week and live in community with others, you're willing to say, hey, let me confess my sin. Let me tell you about where I am struggling and where I'm sinning and where I'm hiding and where I have this tendency to cover. Not because there's some magic power in them and they can absolve you from their sin. It's to walk in the lights. It's to have a brother or sister come alongside you and encourage you and help you. It's to say, I don't want to hide. I want to live in freedom. And so what we do here on Sunday puts freedom into us so that we can go and live on during our week in this freedom in community. And so what starts here on Sunday together feeds into how we live during the week. And then as a way of kind of sliding into the conclusion here, we confess, but we also profess. Because here's a question. If you read Psalm 32 verse 11, this is what David writes, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. How can David be so confident that God forgives him? I mean, he moves from this, talking about this blessing, and then he experiences what it's like to not confess. And then when he says, says, when I do confess, here's this incredible blessing that surrounds me, and I'm going to rejoice. And he tells all who confess their sins, shout and be glad and rejoice in the Lord. How can he have such confidence? How can he know his sins are forgiven? Because where there's no assurance, there's no true rejoicing. I mean, think of it this way. Let's say you have this... Incredible debt, whether it be school loan or house payment or car payment, whatever it is. And you spend all this time sacrificing to pay off that loan. And when that is paid off, what do you do? You rejoice. You're happy. You're free. You go out and spend money in other ways, right? There's this incredible burden that's been lifted off you. But why can you rejoice? Why can you be so confident that that will not be held against you? Because there's a legal document that says, hey, once this is paid, this is all I'm on the hook for. Once that's paid off, I'm good. And so there's a confidence, an assurance. Where does David's assurance come from? Well, his confidence and his assurance is in God's covenantal love. As he says in verse 10, steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. That's his confidence. God's steadfast love and promise to forgive. And this is our confidence and assurance as well. God's unending, unbreakable covenants built, guarant- built on and guaranteed by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is why we profess our faith. This is why we hear an assurance of pardon every week we do a confession to ground us where our confidence and our assurance lies. The fact that Jesus Christ was crucified for sinners, resurrected and reigning, that God is actively working in history to redeem a people who he loves, bringing them together. And we profess our faith It grows us in this confidence. It grows us in these truths. Here's what the Apostle John says in 1 John 4. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Notice the effect John is describing. Professing our faith in Christ strengthens our knowledge and belief that God loves us in Christ. And the more secure we are in our knowledge and our belief in God's love, what is cast out? Fear. Fear. God's love casts out fear and replaces it with assurance and confidence. That's why we profess our faith, to replace that fear, to replace that worry, to replace the shame. Because here's what happens. The sin keeps coming in, and we carry the shame. We know we're sinners. We know we mess up. We know we're broken. And so those voices, whether external or internal, come and start creeping in. And they start chipping away at our assurance, chipping away at our confidence, causing us to doubt that God loves us. And we profess our faith, we're saying, no. Shame, you don't get the last word. Doubt, you don't get the last word. Fear, you don't get the last word. Guilt, you don't get the last word. In Jesus Christ, I know I am loved and accepted, and that cannot change. And so we profess our faith to root ourselves in what God has done for us and build our assurance. Here's what it also says. It ain't me. I'm not the reason. It's not my performance. It's not my good deeds. I'm not the one that has to hold on to my assurance and earn that assurance. It takes it off me and puts my focus on Jesus Christ, the one who did accomplish this is the beautiful thing that the book of revelation says that the power of professing our faith is a power that will anchor us in the midst of no matter what evil and fear and doubt and attack you and i may face professing our faith gives us endurance and assurance to the very end this is what revelation 12 says that cleanses us from sin, the blood of Christ that defeated all evil, the blood of Christ that defeated death is our sure hope and our sure power over evil and shame and guilt and temptation. But notice the second part of that, in their testimony. Now, I used to read this passage, and I've actually heard this passage talked about, like testimony in the sense of, I stand up and tell you about how God saved me, Kind of. It's more the testimony of Jesus Christ. In the context of Revelation, it's the testimony of Jesus Christ and what he has done. And so it's that anchoring in the testimony of Jesus Christ that gives us the power and gives us the assurance and gives us the confidence and carries us even to the end. And so that's why we profess our faith when we gather. To be built in that kind of confidence, that kind of assurance, that kind of hope, that will carry us all the way even to death. So we don't just do this sort of rote, routine, empty exercise. We come here to grow and to be assured and to be anchored in something outside of ourselves, something more powerful than ourselves, something that brings freedom and brings life. And so, church, let us get off the vicious cycle of pride and fear and experience freedom that comes from the humility to confess our sins and the assurance that comes when we profess our faith. As we sang this morning, let's come boldly to the throne of grace because of Jesus Christ and confess our sins and profess our faith that we might be more and more set free and that we may walk throughout our days in this confidence, in this freedom and that we may go and declare this love that God has for his people, to this world, that we may see others come and confess their sins and know Jesus and make this profession of faith that Jesus Christ, crucified for sinners, is resurrected and reigning. Amen.